our reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 7, and it's on page 678 in the Church Bible. As we come to this reading, let us have in mind that uh, God's word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So let us ask him to open up these words to us that we may learn wonderful things from his word. So Ecclesiastes 11, bringing in at verse 7. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigour are meaningless. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings, like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition of them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Thanks be to God for his word. Thank you, Sue, for reading. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. 
Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're looking at the last in our five-week series in the book of Ecclesiastes. A slightly puzzling book uh, in the Old Testament, but I hope one that has been stimulating and helpful for us. Uh, in one of the songs we sang in that first set at the beginning of the service, um, one of the lines was, speaking of our hearts that are prone to wander. And one of the other lines was a prayer, I guess, um, which we all sang, bind my heart to thee. And so my prayer for all of us this morning is that God would bind his word to our hearts and he would help us because we so quickly forget him, don't we? And we go our own way. Should we pray? And then we're going to get stuck into this last chapter together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these words that you have written and that you would make them real in our hearts, that you would bind our hearts to you and teach us why obedience to you is not only the right thing, but the best thing for us. Amen. Well, when, uh, when we started this series, it was six weeks ago now, um, I remember the first question I asked you was, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? And there was a sort of um, a little ripple around the congregation. Some of you were just yawning, going, well, it's my child that gets me up every morning, and it's the same every single week. Some of you are probably laughing because it's the alarm that goes off at 5.30 in the morning to catch the train to London for work. Uh, I was wild camping on Friday night with a friend of mine from the church and his little boy, uh, kind of mini Bear Grylls, and what got us up in the morning was the crow that was uh, sitting on top of the tree that we were sleeping under. Um, Now, these things are funny, but in a serious sense, I want to continue to ask you that question. What is it that gets you up in the morning? Because... This book of Ecclesiastes we've been seeing, uh, there's a teacher who is instructing the people and the big question that he keeps coming back to time and time again through Ecclesiastes is uh, kind of what is the meaning or purpose of my life? If I strip everything away, what's it all about? Why am I here? What is my life being given for? That's the big question. And I hope we saw and I made the point in the first week that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book you have to kind of wrestle with. You have to grapple with the things that it reveals. It's not a kind of linear book where A plus B equals C. It's a frustrating book. It's a difficult book. It's a book that I hope resonates with our heart. And that's what we've been looking at together. Well, in the last few verses of chapter 11, we get a kind of summary, really, of the whole book, which I want to give us to remind us of some of the things we've looked at in previous weeks. Uh, partly because uh, some people might have forgotten, others have been away on holiday and you may have missed some of the series. So I hope this will prove to be kind of a recap uh, and an encouragement to you. But I want to begin by showing us five things that I hope we've begun to see through the five weeks of Ecclesiastes so far. They're going to come with a picture, each of them. If you look at chapter 11, verse 8, the writer says, However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them. But let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. And if you remember last week, I gave us a number of these sort of paradoxes. A paradox is where there's two truths that seem to be in opposition. They clash with each other, but both are equally true. And we looked at all sorts of things. We've looked at pleasure. We've looked at work. And we've looked at wisdom as the three kind of main subjects in this series. And the writer, on one hand, says these things aren't worth pursuing. They're meaningless. They lead to grief and pain and frustration. What do I gain from having them? But a little later on in the book, the writer commends them. So you're thinking, what do I do with this? Hence the little picture there of tension. There's kind of tension and paradoxes all the way through Ecclesiastes as we wrestle with different truths and we're trying to make sense of them all. 
the big conclusion I hope that you can draw from it is that life for all of us will be a mixed experience. There'll be good times, there'll be bad times, there'll be things we understand, there'll be things that frustrate us we never grasp. Uh, that is the, the world of Ecclesiastes, and it's our world, and I hope it's been helpful to recognize that. The second thing we've seen through the book of Ecclesiastes is this amazing truth that there is a living God who is in control of every single thing. And we sung some songs this morning that help us with that. There is a living God who is in control of all things and a God to whom we are accountable. So have a look down at chapter 11, verse 9. Uh, the writer says, You who are young, be happy while you're young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Well, last week we thought a bit about God as the sovereign maker of the world. And here was a verse that we looked at, just a couple of verses before our reading this morning. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. If you can come to accept that the world has been created, that there is a sovereign creator, it makes logical sense, doesn't it, that you and I, as his creatures, are answerable to him. We're dependent on him. So the big second truth we've seen all the way through Ecclesiastes is there is a God. He's in complete and utter control. And you and I are accountable to him. Here's the third thing. Kind of related. Um, I hope we've seen through the book of Ecclesiastes that our kind of self-reliant independence will come to nothing. We had the hand gestures last week, didn't we? Do we come to God like this? Open hands of humility or like this? I want to fight you. I'm in control. We'll have a look at chapter 11, verse 10. The writer says, So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Now take that little phrase, youth and vigor, uh, to be a kind of expression of a kind of strong, energetic, self-reliant, um, I'm master of my destiny. It's often the characteristic of young people with the kind of confidence and energy that comes with youth. But it doesn't have to be only that. I don't think the writer here using that word youth is specifically talking about young people. He's more talking about the attitude of youth. But why here does he talk about youth and vigor being meaningless? It's because our built-in desire to be independent from God, to be self-sustaining, to be in control of our own life, doesn't that just bring so much anxiety? Think about our worries in our life. We worry because we try to be in control and we soon realize I've got no control over my life. There's so much that I don't have control over. And this is is why I think the writer says, banish anxiety from your hearts. It's meaningless having this kind of youthful, I am in control of my destiny kind of attitude. Because we don't. Because there's a loving God who created us, who he himself is in complete control. I think one of the most helpful definitions I've ever read uh, of what prayer is, is dependence on God. Prayer is that act where I come before a loving God and say, I'm not in control I don't understand. I am weak. And I need you. 
So we've seen there's tensions in life in this book. We've seen there is a loving God who's in complete control. We're answerable to him. We've seen that our self-reliance and our independence ultimately will come to nothing. Do you remember my courgettes? I've come back to the courgettes a few times. The vegetable patch in my garden. The big point was, you and I cannot reap meaning where meaning has not been sown. I can't go and get courgettes in my garden where I didn't plant them. And in the same way, God, who's in control of his world, has planted meaning in his world. But I cannot reap meaning in places he has not planted it. So back in chapter 5, the writer said, listen. Chapter 5, verse 1, listen. And he could have equally written, remember. And it's a common phrase that God used of his people in the Old Testament who kept on turning their backs on him. Didn't God keep saying, remember? So that word listen in chapter 5, verse 1 is really the same kind of word that you get in chapter 12, verse 1, where here the writer says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And it's such an important thing. He repeats it again in verse 6. You see it there? Remember him. Now I think it's quite significant. He doesn't say here, remember God in the days of your youth. The writer deliberately uses the name creator. Now God is creator. But why does he use creator here? He's wanting the readers, those who are listening, to recognize it's not just God that we're answerable to. It's our creator. The one who has given us our life. And to remember God isn't a sort of intellectual ascent, oh, I know God, rather like I remember where I left my keys last night. Remembering God is much more about that willing submission before him, bowing the knee and committing our lives to him. Uh, If I was to say to you, uh, 1066, what would you say to me? Battle of Hastings, there we go. If I say to you, 1588, what do you say to me? Harder one. Spanish Armada. If I say to you 1914 to 1919, what do you say? First World War. These are key dates. I don't remember many dates, but they're three dates I learned in history lessons at school. What have they all got in common? Battles. Great battles on the sea, great battles on the land. But you know, there's a far greater battle that's been going on far longer than any world war. It's a battle that's been going on really since very soon after the creation of the world. And it's the battle that's raging in your heart and in my heart. Not really often a seen battle. But it's a far bigger battle than the great wars that we've witnessed or we learn about at school. Well, why is our heart such a big battleground? The writer says because life is a gift. And God wants you and I to understand the purpose of the life that he has given us. So do you see in chapter 12, verses 2 to 5, you get these different metaphors of growing old. Now, the risk of offending someone here, sometimes it is funny and appropriate to laugh at old age, isn't it? And we kind of all do it, and the older people here will do it as well. There's some funny birthday cards that I've seen, which I find quite amusing. You know, when the eyesight goes... There's another one here. When the hearing begins to go. I'll give you a moment to figure this one out. Uh, If you're listening online, you just need to look at the PowerPoints and try and figure these ones out. Otherwise, you'll be very confused where everyone's laughing in the background. 
And this last one, um, it's a little bit of a sort of a picture of the defiance of old age, okay? So just take this with a slight pinch of salt. <laughs> Don't tell me to be healthy and... I live to 100, there we go. Okay, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the point is sometimes we can laugh at old age, but at another level, in a very serious level, sometimes growing old can be very difficult, and many here will experience that. It creates pain, it creates frustration. Uh, look down uh, to chapter two, uh, 12, verses 2 to 5. You get these metaphors of the aging process, uh, perhaps pictures of depression, uh, failing faculties, insecurities, physical weakness maybe, and ultimately death. The writer's just drawing our attention to some realities that we all face in our life. It's not saying that all old people suffer real health, but it's saying at the end of the day we will all grow old, and ultimately it leads us to death. It's just a reality that we have to accept. And so the writer says in chapter 12, verse 6, Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. In the ancient world, there'll be a kind of little bowl like this, and it'd be filled with oil with a wick, and it might hang from the roof. Well, if that chain snaps, what happens to the golden bowl? It crashes to the floor, and the little light that was flickering is snubbed out. Or you get later on, remember him before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. Perhaps in the old days, people would go to a well with a pitcher, a kind of clay pot to gather water, or they'd take a cart with wheels on it to gather the buckets of water and take them to their home. But what happens when the clay pot breaks or the wheels fall off the cart? There's no way now that you can gather water. And water all the way through the scriptures is a sign of life. So the writer is playing with these metaphors to say one day life will come to an end. It will be snubbed out. You'll never be able to collect water ever again. And so that is why in chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, because he is the one who has sown meaning into his world. And he wants us to use our life to recognize where is it that he has sown meaning, because that's the only place that you and I will reap meaning. I've often quoted uh, Augustine, one of the early church fathers in this little series. I love reading some of the stuff he's written. And this is one of his most famous lines. Many of you will have heard this, but Augustine famously quipped, God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until we find rest in you. We can only reap meaning in a world where God has sown meaning. And there's our last picture, the bubbles. Remember the bubbles that we began our series with? And this is really teaching us that life without God is but a bubble. This was a slide I showed you in the first week where the writer starts this puzzling book with a really funny phrase. Why in the world would you start a book where you're shooting yourself in the foot? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And we said, well, this could have been a book written by Eeyore. But that word meaningless, remember, doesn't mean pointless. It means breathy, vapor, like a bubble. Because all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer has been trying to search for meaning. And every time he's scrabbled around and found something he thinks will give him meaning, he's found a bubble and he's looked at it and the bubbles burst. 
So he's gone in search of something else to give him meaning. And he's found another bubble. And it's burst. But we did see in chapter 3, didn't we? The writer begins perhaps to recognize something that's not bubble-like. Because what did he say in chapter 3, verse 11? God has set eternity in our hearts. So the writer has recognized there is something that is eternal. And he seems to begin to make the link between something that's eternal and that which it is in life that gives you and me meaning. Well, there's our set of pictures. But I wonder if you reflect on this book. One of the puzzling things is that God isn't referenced very much for Ecclesiastes. Have you noticed that? He doesn't sort of come up that much. But by the end, a whole new dimension is added, particularly in chapter 12, because that which has been implicit all the way through the book, that which has been implied, becomes explicit, explained, in chapter 12. So come with me to chapter 12, verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. A goad is a long pointy stick that someone who was driving oxen that were carrying a plough would use to prod or to hit the oxen to keep it in a straight line. It's about direction. And a firmly embedded nail in construction, what does it do? It joins two bits of timber together so they cannot move. So here the writer is using these two little metaphors to say this is what wisdom does. It keeps you straight. It directs you. And it embeds you firmly. It establishes you. That is what wisdom does. And notice where this wisdom comes from. Because in verse 11, the writer says, This wisdom was given by one shepherd. Uh, All the way through the Old Testament, um, God is called a shepherd. But there's only three places in the Bible where you get this little phrase, one shepherd. And the first two uses were in a a book called Ezekiel, in chapter 34 and in chapter 37, one shepherd. And on both occasions, the context where it's used is God calling a wayward people back to himself. And isn't that exactly what's happening here in Ecclesiastes, where it's used for the third time? It's It's as if God is calling you and I back to himself. And so as you get to the end of the book... And you reflect on the things we've seen all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. As you've grappled and learnt. The question for you is, are we going to acknowledge these things on the screen that our hearts have come to see? And how will you and how will I respond to them? Notice how he goes on, verse 12. Uh, The teacher says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. This is a verse that's always pondered me. Uh, someone once quoted this to me when I was overworking. Uh, it may be helpful. It might be seriously pastorally insensitive. But it's just a verse that is taken out of, in isolation and we often throw around. But I've often wondered, why is it here? I think it's here because so often in life we will gather wisdom from lots of different places. And perhaps we'll come to the wisdom of God. And we'll gather the bits of the wisdom of God that we like. But ultimately, why do we read his word? 
It's so that we can go off and write our own wisdom. And I might as well listen to the wisdom of Buddha too and stick that in. Just find the bits that I like and make up my own wisdom. I think that's what the writer says here. On the making of many books, there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Why? If I'm seeking to establish wisdom for myself, I'll become weary. Because I can't know everything. I can't understand everything. The making of many books, there'll be no end. But here's the glorious truth for you and for me, if we can accept it. That there is one book that has been written that gives us everything that we need. What does the Bible say? God says, I have given you this, and in it contains everything that you need for life and for godliness. Wisdom would say, let's listen to someone who knows what they're talking about when they give us when he gives us his wisdom, rather than making up our own worldly, human-centered wisdom for ourselves, Well, there's kind of Ecclesiastes, a summary of where we've been, trying to help us to understand wisdom. But just in the last few moments, I want to pick up on this little phrase that comes right at the end in verse 13, where the writer says, okay, everything's been heard. He's kind of run out of things to say. Here, he says, is the conclusion of the matter. And he starts off by saying, if I'm going to give you a conclusion for all this exploration, the first conclusion I want to give you is this. Fear God. Now, for lots of us, when we hear that word, we perhaps think, what are you saying? Is that saying I have to be scared of God? Well, that just reinforces the stereotype I have in my mind of God, that he's just a God up there and he's pretty wicked and he beats me with a big stick every time I muck up. Am I being called to fear him for that reason? But if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, just an example in chapter 3, 5 and 8 and other places, you'll see what fear actually means. And it's used in other contexts with words like awe, words like reverence, words that associated with humility. To fear God is not to be scared of him, but to bow the knee before him. I've often joked with my wife, Steph, that when I die, I think it'd be quite cool if she took my ashes and sprinkled them on the top of a mountain in Wales where I've done lots of walking. A part of the reason for that request is that it would be the one time in her life, perhaps, where she gets to the top of a mountain. <laughs> That's one of my projects, which is failing miserably. It's unlikely, okay? But if my ashes aren't sprinkled on the top of a mountain, uh, one of the places where I've really feel sometimes I have a sort of real connection with God in the sense of being battered by the wind and the rain and the elements and I feel God's power for me in a very real sense. That is where I'd love to be buried, but it probably won't happen. If I get buried somewhere else and perhaps someone chooses to give me a gravestone, what I'd love to have on my gravestone was Mark was a man who stood in awe of his God. Now I don't know if that will be true, but I long for it to be true. I don't want to be remembered for anything I might do in my life. And I hope that you wouldn't either. But I hope that all of us would want to have on our gravestone, here was a person who stood in awe of the God who made them, who recognized that he wasn't God of his life, but there was a God and bowed the knee before him. I think that would be the best gravestone that any of us could have. But he goes on, he says, don't only fear God, but he says, secondly, and this is puzzling, keep his commandments. And really, this keeping of commandments is the fruit of right fear. Because if I recognize who God is, 
I want to keep his commandments. I see that his commandments are good for me. I see that they're there for my flourishing. You look at verse 11 again. The words of the wise are like goads. They're like firmly embedded nails. Who here needs direction in their life? Who here needs to be firmly established in a broken, messed up world? I do. And I suspect you do. And that is why it's a wonderful thing that God in his love says, fear me and keep my commandments. Do you remember last week I, I took my Bible and I said, here's a Bible and I think it has two main functions. Do you remember what they were? To reveal God to me and to reveal me to me. I need to have an ever-growing view of God that he gets bigger and bigger and bigger in my life. Because every breath I take, he has given me. I need to have a smaller and smaller view of myself. Not because I'm not important or made in his image, but because I'm not Lord of my life. In my early 20s, I did a, kind of, a lot of speaking at, uh, in kind of um, cafes and sports quizzes, restaurants, that kind of thing. Evangelistic speaking. And I was often asked in kind of Q&A, um, often by someone who didn't like something I'd said, um, come on, can you prove to me that your faith is reasonable? It's a kind of question that a person without belief might say. And it's a good question. Now, if you're here today and you don't know God as your personal Lord and Savior, if you don't have a relationship with him, just for a moment, I'm going to turn that question around to you. Is your unbelief reasonable? Particularly based on everything we've seen in Ecclesiastes. If anything on the screen behind me resonates with your heart, is it reasonable to carry on living our lives and dismissing God? Is it? You ask me the question, I'm going to ask you the question. And I think it's a really important question to think about. Uh, I tried to bring it in, but I couldn't find one, okay? But can you imagine there's a little uh, cage hanging here, okay? You can imagine it, picture in your head. And inside there's a little yellow budgie. I couldn't bring one in. I'd looked everywhere. So here's my budgie, okay? Now can you imagine I come to the front of the little wire cage and I open the door and I reach in to grab hold of the budgie. What's it going to do? Whack! It's going to squawk! Probably won't sound quite like that. But that's the best budgie impression you're going to get this morning, okay? But I open up the cage, and it's going to squawk, and it's going to flap its wings. Why? Because the budgie wants to be in the cage, and while it's in the cage, it's safe. This is its world. It doesn't want someone to grab hold of it. But if I grabbed hold of the budgie, and even though it's flapping, I take it in my hand, what would I then do with it? I'd let it go. And suddenly the budgie would recognize it wasn't created to live in a cage. It would suddenly realize there's a whole world out there that it had never experienced before. And that is exactly what God wants us to understand when he speaks about his commandments. He is, as it were, reaching into the cage and releasing us to a place of far greater freedom where we can flourish. Fear God Keep his commandments. And finally, for this is the duty of mankind. In your Bibles, you might have little brackets around the word duty. It's because it's not in the original. It's actually quite misleading because it's not a word which is saying, um, this is a demand God places on you. As in, there's a God, here you are, and you have a duty. It's far more speaking of your need and my need of God. So actually, a more helpful word would be something like essence or being. In other words, 
This is the essence of mankind. What does it mean to be a human being created by God? The essence of what it means to be a human being is to know the God who created us, to fear him and to keep his commands. As we come to a close, there was verse 14, which you see at the end there. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And as we've looked at our pictures, which summarize the book of Ecclesiastes, they have spoken of the fact that there is a God who's in complete control. He is the judge of the world that he has made. Well, there's lots of different ways of describing the judgment of God, but particularly for the book of Ecclesiastes, I just want to use one way of illustrating it. In many ways, the judgment of God is God leaving you and me to the consequences of our own desires. So if I go through my life, either kind of apathetic, I don't need you, God, not bothered, or I go through my life with this defiant, I don't want you in my life, I don't even believe you exist, there comes a point where God eventually gives us what we want. Where he says, okay, if you don't want me in my life, if you don't believe I exist, you live your life your way. But it's the withdrawal of God in judgment that is what is so terrible about his judgment. Now, perhaps you or you know someone would say, yeah, but I don't have God in my life. I'm not bothered about him. And actually, my life's all right. There's loads of good things I enjoy. So this judgment's not that bad, really. God so loves us that he will continue to bless us with good things, even when we ignore him. Even when we don't even believe he exists, he'll still lavish us with good things. But there will come one day a point where he withdraws himself completely. And if God is the source of everything that is good, and we get separated from that, from him, we also get separated from everything that is good. And that is what hell is. And none of us want to be there. And that is why the writer says to us, remember your creator in the days of your youth, because one day you will die and you will face the loving judgment of God. Last week, as I closed, I nearly got choked up, and I did inside, where I said to us, we've always got to be a church that makes much of Jesus Christ. And the reason that is so important is because it was on the cross of Jesus, where Jesus Christ died. He bore the full weight of judgment that you deserve and that I deserve. But he did it in love, because he wants to free us. It was as if on the cross... God in his love was reaching inside the budgie cage. And what do we do? We all squawked and said, don't take hold of me. But he did it because he loves us, because he wants to take us out of the cage and set us free. That is a God who loves us. That is a God who it's worth serving. So I'm going to close with the words that the writer closed with. But you'll notice there's a blank there. Now all has been heard, but here is the conclusion of the matter. And I'd love each of us to decide what we want to put on that line there. Because I agree with the writer. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Unless you know the living God who has set eternity in your hearts. And if you do... 
There's no better place to be.